15 events, 11 pay-per-views with over 5 million buys, 17 title fights, over $60 million at the gate, and nearly three full weeks of fan expo days. Now, normally after a pay-per-view, we'd do an autopsy video, but considering UFC 276 marked the 10th anniversary of International Fight Week, we thought it would be fun to do an autopsy of sorts on the last 10 years of IFWs and the events that headlined them, including this weekend's card. Where did the concept of International Fight Week even come from? Why did the UFC start doing this in 2012? And the biggest question, has this concept actually worked? For the promotion, for the fans, for Las Vegas. Today we're putting the UFC's yearly crown jewel event on the examination table to find the answers. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and I want to know if International Fight Week has actually been a success. For a long time, the city of Las Vegas had a 4th of July problem. When the holiday would fall during the week, tourism was down bad, and I don't mean in the DMs. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that the city missing out on one of the major holidays in the U.S. where people are off work and spending money is a huge issue. But since we're talking about it, nearly a fourth of Nevada's entire GDP is tied up in tourism, and if you're headed to the Silver State, you're probably there to see Vegas. The solution to this summer holiday problem would end up being cage fighting, or rather the fans of it. In 2012, the UFC teamed up with the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority to brainchild what would be known as International Fight Week. The idea was pretty simple. Give fight fans, which would come in droves to big UFC pay-per-view events on Fridays and Saturdays, a reason to show up earlier in the weekend spend their money. Such a partnership between the city and the promotion had been in talks for some time before 2012, but it was the massive UFC 148 rematch between Chael Sonnen and Anderson Silva for the middleweight title that finally got the pair past the idea phase and into actually making this thing happen. It also didn't hurt that when the UFC had an independent study done earlier that year, the results showed that fans coming into town for cards were spending a whole lot more money in the city than the average Vegas tourist. International Fight Week was kind of a no-brainer. UFC had already been targeting the 4th of July weekend for huge cards anyway. It was almost a tradition by 2012. Ortiz versus Shamrock, Jackson versus Griffin, UFC 100, Lesnar Carwin, all in that Independence Day holiday time frame, all in Vegas, all massive shows. And there was precedent elsewhere from a company that had already inspired the UFC's pay-per-view model in the early 2000s. Brian Alvarez of the Wrestling Observer pointed out shortly after the announcement of the first IFW that it was to be the UFC's answer to WrestleMania week which had been massively successful in a similar vein, giving fans a reason to come into town earlier in the week and spend a ton of money. Each year, the entire wrestling world would descend on whatever city was hosting to put on smaller shows, go to all the official and unofficial fan events throughout the week, drive up hotel and restaurant revenue, and make huge bank for the WWE. That June, the UFC released the first-ever IFW slate to let fans know what they were in for should they decide to spend their 4th of July holiday in Vegas. Even by today's standards, this was a fan's dream, and packed with all kinds of reasons to show up. A big-ass UFC trailer parked on Fremont Street all week for fan experience stuff with fighters and personalities, a presser fans could attend on Tuesday, a free concert on Wednesday, open workouts, pool parties, and pub crawls with fighters and octagon girls that Thursday, a beach party, not sure how much different that is from a pool party, but hey, it's hot people in less clothing, a huge two-day fan expo at Mandalay Bay on Friday and Saturday that had more activities than would even make sense to list here, and then of course the live weigh-ins and finally, Finally, the 
the massively hyped UFC 148. There was even an official after party at Trist's nightclub following the card. It was just so much more than any previous UFC event had ever had to offer to fans, and it was a massive success as a result. Dana would later reveal that the week brought in an estimated 93 to $140 million for the city. And mind you, that's in 2012 money on a week that traditionally had been difficult for Vegas tourism. And as far as the UFC itself, they made bank. 148 would have, at the time, the highest domestic gate in UFC promotional history, coming in just shy of $7 million. The pay-per-view, which really wouldn't live up to the hype per se, but was still incredibly compelling, sold nearly a million buys. It was official, International Fight Week was a success and would be an annual event. Keeping up the quality of that very first magical week, though, wasn't exactly easy. Sure, the UFC would add more meet and greets, more smaller shows would take place on Fight Week, sometimes actual UFC events like Fight Night cards or a tough finale, an annual 5K run would begin in 2014, there were art galleries and exhibits. In 2015, the super popular Hall of Fame inductions began to take place on IFW. Ultimately, though, what truly mattered, especially in those early days, was what got you heading to Vegas in the first place. That huge pay-per-view event that was the culmination of the entire week, which proved far more difficult to keep in as high a quality as all the activities for fans throughout the lead-up. Much like Jake Paul's second fight with Tyron Woodley, the second IFW card, UFC 162, was only considered a major success after the fact. Beforehand, it was pretty lackluster on paper when put up against the previous year with that massive Silva Sun and rematch. Instead, a relatively unknown Chris Weidman got his chance at dethroning the middleweight king and shockingly succeeded, creating possibly the biggest all-time moment in IFW history. But that was after the fact. The pay-per-view itself did nearly half the buys as its predecessor and had a gate of two million less. 2014's International Fight Week would suffer the loss of a huge rivalry between Chael Sonnen and Vanderlei Silva to bolster its undercard when both fighters had PED-related issues. Object to the test! UFC 175 was luckily slightly upgraded when a middleweight title bout between Chris Weidman and Lyoto Machida was added to the card when it had to be bumped from 173 after a minor injury to the champ. Otherwise, it was Ronda Rousey left to carry the weight of the card on her back, but interest in her Alexis Davis bout wasn't exactly high, and ultimately the numbers would reflect the apathy for this one, scoring roughly the same buy rate and gate as the previous year's effort. Then along came an Irishman. UFC 189's 2015 International Fight Week finally delivered on that huge promise of the very first event, even with Jose Aldo dropping out of the headlining featherweight title bout just weeks before the card. It didn't matter. Conor McGregor was the show, and he was going to be fighting for interim gold against Chad Mendez. It didn't hurt that Robbie Lawler and Rory McDonald had possibly the greatest fight in UFC history as the co-main event in the lead-up to Conor's crowning moment. The card was huge despite its setbacks, 825,000 pay-per-view buys, a new Vegas attendance record, the new largest US gate at 7.2 million, International Fight Week had delivered, and what was to be the biggest show in the promotion's history was slated for the next year, UFC 200. The plan was simple, get the Irish guy to headline it again. Like Will Smith in the 90s, Connor was about to be Mr. July. This time in a rematch with Nate Diaz after his first ever UFC loss, my god can you imagine the numbers? One, two, three, four, five. I'm sure you can't. Yup! Six, seven, eight, nine. And as when McGregor no-showed a press event for the pay-per-view, the fight was moved to UFC 202 and did 1.65 million pay-per-view buys. Did they move it away from IFW knowing it would sell well on its own, or was Connor no-showing and getting kicked off 200 a happy accident? But I'll never tell. We'll probably never know, but that was truly the least of the event's problems. A week after Connor versus Nate was dropped, the UFC announced the rematch between John Jones and Daniel Cormier in a title unification bout as the new headliner. Holy shitballs, we were back in business. Oh yeah, and guess who was back? Brock fucking Lesnar. Yeah, that's right, Brock Lesnar was
was coming out of retirement and fighting Mark Hunt. This card was seriously nuts. If you look at everything that was slated for it from top to bottom, I mean, Gegard Masasi was on the Fight Pass prelims. It was absolutely jam-packed. And then three days before the show, JBJ popped for the juice, Cormier got Anderson Silva last minute, and Nunez versus Tate was upgraded to the main event. The card itself was decent, but could never have lived up to the expectations. Not that it much mattered, Brock alone put 200 over a million pay-per-view buys, and the event would again break the Nevada attendance record and have the highest International Fight Week gate ever with 10.7 million. Of course, afterwards, Lesnar would fail two separate piss tests, but by that point, the checks had already cleared. Next year's International Fight Week was somehow an even bigger disaster. Sure, 200 was a black eye, but it made a ton of money. UFC 213 underdelivered in just about every way possible. The proposed bout between Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw never even got a chance to be made official. The headliner between Nunez and Valentina Shevchenko fell off right before the event. There was a single finish on the main card. Robert Whitaker versus Yoel Romero fought for interim gold to close out the night. And while the bout was definitely good, the stakes didn't feel particularly high as we awaited the return of George St. Pierre. The buy rate was shocking. 150,000 total. The gate only 2.4 million. This could have been a fight night card. Not the biggest show on the biggest week of the year. UFC 226 in 2018 would not exactly be the IFW rebound the promotion had hoped for. Although it was miles ahead of the previous year. The headliner was a super fight between light heavyweight champion Daniel Cormier and heavyweight champion Stipe Miocic. This was at the time considered about to determine possibly the best heavyweight ever. There was meant to be a featherweight title bout on the card as well between Max Holloway and Brian Ortega. However, that was the week that Max was having those scary interviews and the fight was scrapped. Instead, Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou would co-main events and have one of the worst fights in MMA history. But all's well that ends well, right? DC KO'd Miocic in dramatic fashion in the first round to become double champ. It was a hell of a moment. Then Brock Lesnar stormed the cage to set up a fight with Cormier, which by a huge margin was the most talked about moment from the whole week. Ultimately, 226 would only see 380,000 pay-per-view buys and end up with a gate of 5.6 million. Certainly better than the previous year's efforts, but International Fight Week had seen better days. In 2019, an IFW card finally held up. What a miracle. The headlining title bouts actually took place. John Jones versus Tiago Santos and Amanda Nunes versus Holly Holm. There was a white-hot Jorge Masvidal on the undercard against the ultra-popular Ben Askren. This was a good card. We saw the birth of legendary Polish power. Of course, there was the five-second flying knee KO. He's dying! I mean, what hasn't already been said about that? Super necessary. Nunez won with a head kick, and JBJ got pushed to his limit in an amazing effort by an injured Santos. It's one of the better International Fight Week cards, but the numbers didn't reflect the quality. While the buy rate is unknown, the gate would just barely break 6 million, up only slightly from the previous year. Then COVID-19 destroyed the whole damn world. For the first time since 2012, there was no International Fight Week, truly. No Fan Expo, no Hall of Fame, no crowd even at the event that culminated the week. Just UFC 252 and an empty apex. In mid-August, no less. DC and Stipe headlined again, this time in their trilogy bout, and otherwise this was just like any other pay-per-view event, maybe even a fight night. Miocic won, DC retired, there were 500,000 pay-per-view buys, it was sad times all around. Pandemic be damned though, the UFC had a version of the International Fight Week in 2021 in the lead-up to UFC 266, although a bit pared down. The core elements were there though. The two-day fan experience, much like the Expo, Hall of Fame inductions, and of course a live crowd for the pay-per-view. Sure, it took place in late September, but hey, the fact that it even existed at all was exciting. And the card was not too shabby. The unexpected return of Nick Diaz to take on Robbie Lawler, the Bullet defending her flyweight title against Lauren Murphy, 
And your headliner, Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. Ultimately, not too bad a show with the main event really delivering and ending this halfway international fight week on a high note. Which finally leads us to this year, UFC 276. A proper return to international fight week in the spirit of the event prior to the pandemic. It actually took place in early July. There was a proper fan expo known as X because it's cool. There was even a damn pool party again. The world is healing. As for the card itself, it wasn't particularly special. It held together at the top and was great on paper, but Alexander Volkanovsky put on a clinic in his featherweight title defense against Max Holloway that wasn't exactly competitive, and Adesanya versus Cannoneer will likely only be remembered for Stylebender's entrance. What's really fascinating to see, though, is the growth of the UFC post-pandemic, an era the promotion regularly cites as increasing their popularity considerably. With the first proper IFW pay-per-view event since restrictions were lifted, the UFC brought in a $10.4 million gate, just shy of 200's all-time best. Which is impressive considering Adesanya's star is on the rise, but he's not exactly Brock Lesnar or Conor McGregor at the box office yet. We might just be entering an era where $10 million July 4th weekend gates are the norm. And so that was the history of the 10 years of International Fight Week. How it started, where it's gone, and I have to say, despite a lot of their hardships, I think ultimately this concept has been a success. It was originally designed to fix that holiday problem for the city, and even in its worst iterations, it likely did. I mean, all of those gates were still relatively high. It was also meant to provide fans with an insanely stacked up week of activities that let them get closer to fighters and other personalities in the sport than they would ever have a chance to at any other point in the year. And that aspect of it appears to be the one constant, minus 2020. The concept of this July supercard, though, that's been very hit and miss. Not that the attempts haven't largely been there, and I do think most fans just hope the magic can be replicated from time to time still, and because so many of them have just been okay, I think for the most part fans have lowered their expectations that we're going to get something unlike we've ever seen every single time. What's really fascinating about the modern UFC audience, at least as it pertains to IFW, is that regardless of the show now, it's become something a lot of fans plan on going to no matter what, because they see it as just this giant party all week, and you get to hang out with all your other MMA Twitter friends because they all came too. I definitely think they have succeeded in making that week feel special, despite a lot of ups and downs. And I'd imagine that will likely continue, because they seem pretty committed to the idea of International Fight Week, even if they don't get it right every single time. Big ol' shout-out to my dude Luke Taylor for editing this video together. You can find him and his awesome digital art on Twitter at CoolToMe underscore. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.